President Joe Biden has presided over the two largest legislative initiatives ever passed by Congress. They have a total price tag of more than $3 trillion. The legislation includes a recovery act intended to help families and businesses remain solvent during the financial challenges of the pandemic. The second was a major infrastructure bill that previous administrations had prioritized but failed to pass. The Biden administration has also presided over a dramatic dip in unemployment, which now stands at less than 4%, a significant increase in average wages, and a 5.7% increase in gross domestic product in the fourth quarter of 2021, which is the largest quarterly increase in GDP since 1984. Nevertheless, a signature part of Biden's agenda, the Build Back Better proposal, which seeks to enhance child care, protect the environment, and reduce inflation, among other initiatives, remains unpassed. We will talk today about what can be accomplished by the Biden administration in 2022, which is a midterm election year. We also will talk about the recent announcement of resignation by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. And helping us to understand the implications of these developments are Dr. Sarah Fisher, a professor of political science at Emory Henry College, and Joe Batana, a regular contributor to WEHC. They are joining us online for this discussion. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Good, Eric. Thanks for having us back again. Let's talk about the Biden agenda for this next calendar year. 2021 probably was mixed results for him. He did get his rescue package passed, which was he was able to get a trillion plus spent on infrastructure. So in terms of money spent, he seemed to have a very successful year. He did not, however, get any action on his Build Back Better plan. Sarah, let's start with you and ask you if you think this is a year when anything can be accomplished, given the political environment and given the discussion that's already been had about Build Back Better and the likelihood that that cannot pass as a complete package. I do not think that anything can get done this year on the Build Back Better. Do you think anything can get done in small amounts like they've suggested? I mean, maybe, but I'm doubtful of that as well. Unless you can get something where Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema want to vote for it. Um, I just don't imagine that you're going to get anything done in a midterm year where things are so polarized. So I'm very doubtful. Joe, are you doubtful as well? And why is it so difficult to get something passed in a midterm year? Although I'm not totally giving up um, hope on it, um, the thing that makes it difficult in, a, in an election year um, is that it's an election year. And uh, with the highly polarized environment we have right now, um, if you support anything that is not popular with your party, and this goes for both parties, um, you're, you're a candidate to be, to be attacked, to be, even to be primary uh, in, your, in your own election. And, uh, and that gives anyone that, that wants to keep their job in Washington a lot of pause for doing anything that would, uh, that would run afoul of, uh, of what the folks uh, in, uh, that, that control the purse strings, that control the agenda for your party would have. Let's talk about 
why certain things didn't get done. Sarah, you alluded to the problems that they were having as Democrats with uh, Senator Manchin and Cinema. What, from your understanding, has kept them from jumping on board with the rest of the Democrats in support of this part of Biden's agenda? I mean, some of it is just that all politics are local, right? So Manchin is a Democrat in a state that is fairly red. And so that's not really surprising at all. Um, Kristen Cinema is a Democrat who was elected in a statewide race in a state that kind of has this to, you know, reference Joe McCain um, or John McCain, I'm sorry, um, a sort of maverick kind of quality about it. And so I don't actually think that it's that surprising that those two Democratic senators um, are not voting with the majority of the party. That being said, I also think both of them were very clear about that from the beginning, that they were not sold on this plan. And so I don't think that this was, this should have been a surprise to anyone that this didn't work out. Mm -hmm. What will it take though to get more support in any part of this going forward if the Democrats are going to try this year? Does it involve chopping up the bill? Does it involve a, a different kind of approach? Joe, are there any possibilities that Republicans can support any of this? Yeah, um, I, I think so. But the here, here's one of the problems that, that I'm seeing uh, is that, uh, first of all, the, the fact that they did uh, bifurcate the, the, what I would call the true infrastructure, the bridges and, and, and roads, et cetera, from the uh, from spending bill, uh, made it easier to pass the that first part, the, the, the trillion dollar infrastructure, but makes it harder to pass this thing because um, there, there isn't the, there isn't as, as ready a, a, a base to support it um, as there would have been had everything been, been combined. So that, that's the first thing. So as you, as you, as you, you, you'd have to cut it apart with things that are going to pick up moderate and and red support without losing um, a, a lot of uh, of blue of uh, you know from from Biden's base, and that that becomes increasingly difficult. So um, you know some of the things that, uh, that potentially uh, could could have a could have support. For example, the there's an increase in the um, uh, in in federal spending for uh, Pell grants for for college students. Uh, that's something that probably a lot of people could get behind. But as you as you take something like that and cut it out from the rest of the bill, then support for the rest of the bill gets uh, get, gets weaker and makes it hard to pass anything else. Sarah, I want to try to understand though why it is so hard for certain senators to support this, given the fact that the polls seem to indicate that it is a very popular piece of legislation, especially in its parts. So why would not a senator who wants to do good for his or her state, knowing that it's popular, not work hard to sell it to uh, a receptive voter base and support something at this point? I mean, I think one thing just to stress is that national polls for this do not matter, right? So it does not matter that X percentage of Americans would support this if your state doesn't. The other thing is, again, it's just about state politics, right? I mean, senators don't 
sure your party leadership can make your life much more difficult if they wanted to, to, um, you know, for retribution for not voting on a particular bill, but ultimately you are voted on by the citizens of your state. I just wanted to go back to what Joe said too on thinking about breaking apart the bill, because I absolutely agree that this idea that, oh, we can break apart the bill and that's going to make it easier to pass. I just, I'm not sure that I buy that politically. Um, people rail against like pork barrel spending all the time as this, you know, terrible thing in American politics, but in reality, a lot of that was sort of sweetening the deal for people to vote on bills that they had questions, you know, that they maybe didn't love all of it. Maybe they loved 70% of it, but they got to bring back some bacon to their district. And so people voted on it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not, I'm not convinced that breaking it apart is actually going to be very helpful. Let's talk then about what this means to the, the functionality of our democratic system. It seems because we're so polarized and because we seem to be very unable to pass legislation in a political year, which is basically every other year, what are we going to do with our democracy to make it such that we don't have to depend on a supermajority of one party all the time to get something done? Joe, are we helplessly lost now in, uh, in Washington when it comes to getting something done because of this polarization and the nature and structure of our politics. Well, you know, I, I'd hate to say we're we're totally lost and and adrift. Uh, to to some extent, the the what what this will do is it will it'll it'll force the folks that are trying to pass things to to only uh, to only try to advance things that that really have a you know, a, a fairly broad, a fairly broad appeal. You know, they, they, we were able to get a $1 trillion with a T bill passed for, for infrastructure to address, you know, problems with crumbling uh, roads and, and bridges. I mean, I thought it was uh, just poetic justice that there was a bridge in Pittsburgh that collapsed the day that President Biden was supposed to visit. So he was able to really point out the fact, you know, we're going to build it back. Um, so, so you, you know, to, to say that you can't pass meaningful legislation when we just passed a trillion dollar bill um, is maybe a, a somewhat of a misstatement. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, the, the, the timing of it. Uh, right now, one of the things that's uh, very much in the in the public mind is um, inflation, uh, and uh, and to to advance a piece of legislation that's you know, up close to $2 trillion, um, a lot of which is, um, uh, is additional government spending on, on a variety of, of social programs. And, and by, by no means take my saying that it's spending on social programs makes it bad. I'm not saying that, but it, it, it is uh, something that would, that would be putting additional uh, federal spending into circulation at a time that we're worried about uh, inflation potentially being on the rise and that that makes it unpopular so to some extent it's the timing if if we had an economy that was stagnant and that and, and there was no worry about inflation maybe this thing is more palatable to some of the folks that that, that are operating in the middle than at a time when the you know employment is rising the economy is, is growing rapidly we had a very very good um, fourth quarter GDP report uh, just last week, uh, and we're worried about inflation. So to some extent, it'll be 
uh, you know, the, the old Machiavellian uh, politics is the art of the possible. Uh, you know, if you, if you can't, if you can't hit a triple, try to hit a single. And secondly, um, do so at a time when, uh, when the, the, you know, you have the, a pitcher, the situation in the game that lends itself to, 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 to doing what you're trying to do. Democrats will claim, of course, that the Build Back Better proposal had provisions in it that would have lowered inflation. I think that's up for debate, perhaps, Sarah, but the notion that Joe pointed out that much had been done and much had been accomplished with the, the lar two large pieces of legislation that were passed in 2021, they don't seem to necessarily be helping Biden, though. And even though Joe points out that incident in Pennsylvania where the bridge collapsed and that Biden does have a solution for that, uh, it doesn't appear from polls anyway that there's any indication that voters are going to reward Biden for those successes. And so it does get me back to my previous question, what can be done to help the political process if politicians who are succeeding and perhaps in good faith are not being rewarded for it. I mean, I don't see much of a way out of that. The only thing I would add for the question of like what happens now is I do think that we're going to see increasingly differentiation among states. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if there are certain states that try to pick up pieces of those um, of like the Build Back Better plan, right? So if there are states that are trying to do this or um, even like, you know, groups of states that are trying to do this. So I wouldn't be surprised if that occurs, but, you know, the federal system for the United States, we have these swings sometimes where we have sort of the national government has quite a bit of power and then you sort of swing back to the states. And so I've wondered if with gridlock in Washington, if we're just gonna keep seeing um, a lot of leadership sort of go to the states. And I think you saw that with COVID for the first, you know, year and a half plus of that is that states were the ones really making the different policies there. And so I wonder if we're going to see more of that as well. We need to go to a break, Joe and Sarah. And when we come back, I want to take up the issue of the Supreme Court and the retirement of Justice Breyer. And I want to also remind our listeners that I am talking today with Sarah Fisher, she is a political science professor at Emory and Henry College, and Joe Batana, who is a regular political contributor to WHC. You are listening to Together to Get There, the show dedicated to economic and community development in Southwest Virginia. I am your host, Dirk Moore. You are also listening to WHC 90.7, the voice of Southwest Virginia. WEHC is proud to celebrate Black History Month with facts about notable African Americans of Southwest Virginia. A speechwriter for Dr. Martin Luther King taught at Emory & Henry College. This confidant to Dr. King was also an executive at Motown. Do you know who that was? The answer after this message. Support for WEHC comes from People Incorporated, believing that every person needs support from others. 
People Incorporated promotes the dignity of individuals and families, moves people into the economic mainstream, and works to develop existing strengths and resources within communities. For information about assistance with community development, education, employment training, family services, financial services, or housing, contact 276-623-9000 or peopleinc.net. All of the efforts of People Incorporated are directed by the concerns, hopes, needs, and dreams of the people served. Dr. Junius Griffin was public relations officer and speechwriter for Dr. Martin Luther King. After Dr. King's assassination, Griffin worked for Motown as vice president for public relations. He came to Emory & Henry College in the late 1990s as a scholar in residence. Join us in celebrating Black History Month at WEHC. together to get there. Today I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Fisher. She is a professor of political science at Emory Henry College and I'm talking to Joe Batana. He is a regular political contributor to WHC. We have spent the first half of this show talking about the Biden agenda for 2022. We want to switch our conversation to the topic of the Supreme Court with the announcement from Stephen Breyer that he is going to be retiring. Uh, I want to get some reaction from you uh, as to what that means for the shape of the court, but also for the shape of our politics, perhaps beginning with the latter first. Do you think this is going to be a contentious battle for his replacement? Let's start with you, Sarah. I think part of me wants you to define contentious, Dirk. Um, <laughs> I, I think this is going to be less contentious than some previous nominations. For a variety of reasons, but I think the main one is that it doesn't really promise any changes to the actual sort of makeup of the court in terms of liberals and conservatives. So I don't see that as being particularly contentious. What are your thoughts, Joe? Do you think it could be, if not contentious, a, a longer approval process than normal? It, it really shouldn't be contentious. I think it will be to some extent just because of the uh, I think some on the Republican side will view it as payback time for uh, some of the way some of the ways that they felt the um, a couple of the recent uh, nominations under President Trump were handled. But uh, beyond that, I mean, it's not going to really change the makeup of the court. You're going to have a uh, one of the more liberal members of the current court stepping down, being replaced by President Biden with another liberal who is going to basically maintain the the numerical relationship about the same. So probably not going to be as contentious as it might have been had it been a situation that could flip the balance of the court. Sarah, if the Republicans do try to draw this out because they want some semblance of revenge, does it work in their political favor to do so? Um, 
so one strong point, it seems, for the Republican base has been court nominees. And so maybe there's an argument for drawing this out is valuable in that it highlights the importance of Supreme Court nominees. Um, I'm, I'm just not convinced that that is necessarily going to be the strategy that they choose. And again, primarily because it doesn't shift the balance of the court. Like the court is, the balance of power in the court is predominantly in the hands of conservatives at the moment. And so, although, right, there's some, like Roberts is one of those that you're sort of not quite sure. Normally he sides with the conservative justices, but you're never quite sure. Um, And so, I just don't think that it's going to be that contentious for this one, but I could be wrong. We'll find out. Well, one thing that will perhaps draw some conservative fire is the fact that President Biden has announced that he will appoint a black female to the court. Sarah, is there a problem in taking out that ground right now? Trump did the same in the sense that he said he was going to nominate a woman. And so while you might get some pushback for saying that you're specifically going to hire a black woman, I just don't think that that's going to be um, a sticking point. It was something that he talked about on the campaign trail. This is the thing that, you know, folks have been looking for Biden to do since he took office. So I just don't think it's going to be that contentious of an issue. Again, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, we'll find out, I guess, in the next few weeks. What are your thoughts about that, Joe? And what thoughts have you given to some of the prospective nominees that Biden has been looking at? Well, uh, first of all, it's not only not only uh, President Trump said he would nominate a woman uh, for one of his uh, positions, but uh, President Reagan said the same thing when he nominated uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. He said he was going to nominate the first woman to the Supreme Court. So. This is not like like you could accuse President Biden of breaking some new and horrible ground. Um, he he basically is doing what's been done before, uh, except for a new category, which is a a, a, a black female jurist. And, and so, I mean, anybody that would anybody that would challenge that is really, I mean, you can you can say whatever you want, but it it really doesn't carry a lot of weight because it's something that's that there's a, a strong precedent for this. And, um, and uh, as far as the candidates that have, that have been put forth, I've, I've looked very preliminarily at the three leading names and you know, they, they, they seem to be highly qualified. I'm sure over the next several weeks, we'll hear a lot more about the cases uh, that, that they've, uh, they've um, ruled on and, and how they've ruled. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I, I certainly would hope that uh, President Biden is not going to bring forth someone that is uh, that's going to be, you know, easy for the opposition to knock down. Because you know that you know they'd love to do that if they could. Of those potential nominees that you've looked at, Joe, do you see one that stands out at this point? I think they, and I'm I'm trying to remember her name, Dirk, but there was one who is uh, who is favored by one of Biden's. Um, strong supporters in the in the house uh, a ranking member from I think South Carolina and uh, that would probably be a, a factor that would that would enter the the, you know, the, the calculus of who of who to select but um, you know I, I think that uh, he is going to if he wants this to, to go through with the least possible 
you know, negative noise and delay and acrimony, he'll, he'll pick someone who is highly qualified, who has not taken extremely controversial stands on, on any issues, uh, and, and, uh, and who, who's going to be able to draw support from uh, both sides of the aisle, at least some support from the Republican side, so that she can be approved and she can, she can be on the bench quickly, uh, hopefully from his perspective, before the, the midterm elections. I think that person you're talking about, Joe, was Michelle Childs from the U.S. That's District the one. Yeah. That's right. In yeah. South Carolina. She's 55 years old. Sarah, I'm wondering, although there has been precedent, as you and Joe have pointed out, about announcing that you are going to appoint a female to a Supreme Court position, I'm wondering if, in this environment in which we are, if the fact that she is African-American is really going to create more problems than would be created were she a white female. And I'm saying that because the former president was in Texas at a rally recently, and he seemed to really be pointing fingers in a very racially charged way at certain office holders in the judicial system and making a point of their race. And so I'm wondering if that's could bleed over into this discussion in some ways that could prolong it and make it even more contentious. I mean, I think that's certainly possible, but I just don't think that it is a smart move for the Republicans to do in this. I I think it's a very different thing for senators who are talking to a candidate who's in the room you know, sort of in, in hearings, I just, I think that the optics of that are very different than, um, former president Trump at a rally, right? I think those are very different kinds of things. And I just, I don't imagine that that's going to be a, you know, huge point of contention in the Senate, you know, hearings, but again, I could be wrong. We'll find out. Well, we will, and we're going to have to leave it there. We've run out of time, but I want to thank you both again for joining me in this discussion about politics. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, and I learn so much every time we come together. Sarah Fisher is a professor of political science at Emory and Henry College, and Joe Batana is a regular political contributor to WEHC. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you, Dirk. It's, as usual, great to be with you and Sarah on this program. Thanks for having us. You have been listening to Together to Get There, the show dedicated to economic and community development in Southwest Virginia. I am your host, Dirk Moore, and you are listening to WEHC 90.7, the voice of Southwest Virginia. Thank you for listening.